Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Well, good afternoon, Contrast fam. How are we doing? This week, and hopefully you realize, this is like the Super Bowl week of the Christian calendar. Uh, some of you have maybe grown up celebrating Easter or knowing about it, but um, the Christian calendar actually gives us this entire week, dedicating it as Holy Week. And Holy Week is um, basically several days leading up to from when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem to when he is crucified and resurrects on Easter, which is what we celebrate. Uh, but most people who have celebrated Easter maybe know about Palm Sunday, which is today. And what's unique about Palm Sunday is it's it's kind of this this pre-arrival um, that where all this angst and tension and, and uh, we, I would call it a storm is building as he arrives into Jerusalem on Sunday, on Palm Sunday. Most of us think about palm the palm branches. We think about people shouting Hosanna and and, uh, and we're excited about the time of Jesus arriving, but we, we miss a lot of the details and what really makes this story so, so important. I mean, this is just as important um, component as the rest of the days of this week. It's kind of like if you've, if you've seen Star Wars, um, <clears throat> I'm fortunately young enough to, uh, to have not been around when the first three were created, but I, I was uh, alive when the third one finally came out. So they, if, if you remember, they did the order kind of weird. They did four, five, and six, and then later they did one, two, and three. And so you had known the end of the story, but they had yet to finish it, the beginning and the middle. And so the last uh, Star Wars episode that they released in the, those six was episode three. Now, anybody who's watched all six knows that it's one thing to know the ending and know Darth Vader tries to save Luke and, and he ends up dying in the end and you kind of feel sad. But it's another thing to see the entire weight of Anakin becoming Darth Vader and the things that he wrestles with and deals with, the tension between him and the, and the Empire, and, and then even Luke in, in 4 and 5. But in order to get the full story, we might know kind of the ending. And a lot of us Christians, we know the ending. So, spoiler alert, on Sunday, Jesus resurrects. But this week is so important because this is what gives us the weight and understanding of what makes Sunday a big deal. And so this is, this is the first day. This is where Jesus, honestly, he, he kind of flips a switch. And he becomes someone who we really don't typically understand or even realize. In fact, N.T. Wright, who's, who's a great scholar and, and kind of a lot of what I'll be talking about um, in terms of kind of the historical pieces of this, is from him. He says, for the last uh, 100 years or so, the mood in the Western society, which is us, has been let Jesus be a soul doctor, making people feel better inside. Let him be a rescuer, snatching people away from this world to heaven but don't let him tell us about a God who actually does things in the world. We might have to take that God seriously just when we're discovering how to run away, run or run the world our own way. And I think that's kind of the, uh, the framework that I want us to think through today. Cause this Palm Sunday, you've maybe heard several messages. Maybe you've never really heard of it at all. Um, but the, the importance of understanding who Jesus is, what he's doing and how intentional he is, we have to grab these details because they're not just minute little details. Everything is so purposeful and it's so symbolic and it's tying in the entire narrative of the Bible. That's what's so beautiful about it. When you really start to look at these things that Jesus is fulfilling and prophesying, 
it's honestly overwhelming. It is an overwhelming amount of evidence that you you know when you read these gospel accounts of these guys who wrote these story uh, the stories of Jesus. You're like, there's no way that these common dudes would have all of these intertwining beautiful pieces, and that's why we we believe that God has inspired the Bible and the Word of God. So I want to get into um, the tension of this, and so we're gonna we're gonna jump into John twelve twelve. John twelve twelve. This is one of uh, the four accounts of what what they call the triumphal entry of the king. So that's kind of the name of our um, teaching today is the entry of the king, Palm Sunday. And so John twelve twelve, starting in verse twelve, it says, "The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. This was five days before the Passover. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, and they began to shout." Hosanna, which technically in the Jewish culture was Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it just as it was written. Do not be afraid, people of Zion. Look, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things when they first happened, but when Jesus was glorified, that is crucified, resurrected, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that these things had happened to him. So we have this scene of Jesus arriving in the city of Jerusalem. But before we get into the kind of logistics of that and his, his Holy Week, um, I, I want to I tackle a little bit of history here. And I know you're going to be like, all right, this, this is the part where I doze off. But I'm, I'm telling you, some of this is so cool and so fascinating that you're going to want to pay attention. Um, so what, what, what is essentially happening here is, is Jesus is, is marching into, walking into, riding into, if you will, the city. Um, there is a massive storm that has been brewing in this culture. There's three forces, there's three pieces of to this storm that we have to realize. The first one is the Romans. If you know anything about the first century Roman um, history, they were a huge superpower in the world. They had taken over so much. Um, and, and fun fact, if you know anything about Caesar, um, he was not too far off from this time. Uh, actually, he was the ruler a couple people before when Jesus was alive. And we obviously know that what happened to him. But his son, actually, Augustus Octavian, claimed his dad, Julius Caesar, to be divine, which what that meant was that he believed his, da- his dad was God or a God. They could believe in multiple gods at the time. Um, but that meant that he was truly the son of God. The son of God. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Jesus is says to be the son of God. And yet we have the Romans before Jesus, Augustus, Octavian, the ruler, being the son of God. So it's it's actually interesting. If you ask anyone at this time in the Middle East who was the son of God, it was it was the Roman Caesar. They, in fact, they would actually say this phrase. This would be a common phrase: "Is good news? We have an emperor." Remember, good news means gospel. Gospel. We have an emperor. Justice, peace, security, and prosperity in ours forever. The Son of God has become the King of the world. <clears throat> that is not scripture I'm reading. That is a common cultural understanding of the Romans and their king at the time, the Son of God. And so even further than being the Son of God, he was also the, uh, in, in the uh, Roman language, it was called the Pontifex Maximus, which was the chief priest. So he was head over all of the religious activity as well. And so Octavius, uh, he died at 1480. So he was alive during uh, what would be Jesus' birth, you know, teenage, maybe, maybe teenage years, zero. We know that Jesus was born anywhere from zero to four AD. 
And so he ruled till 1480, so he was alive a little bit during that. But then his next son, Tiberius, follows the same exact suit, being divine, saying he was the son of God because Octavian was divine. Um, and Tiberius also had his face on the money. I mean, he was he was the guy who, whenever they would ask Jesus, who do we give to, you know, give Caesar what's Caesar's, his face was on the money. I mean, Tiberius was around during this time of Jesus and when he was crucified. And uh, sometimes we wonder, like, were the Romans really that influential at the time? This seems like, you know, they're there, but are they really doing much? And they were actually there in Jerusalem because they had moved into the Middle East for grain because they were just massively over uh, in flux with people. They couldn't feed them all. They didn't have room for farmlands. So they moved to the Middle East and started, uh, this is a fancy word, but they started to subjugate these different communities and cities and areas. And basically what that meant was it was kind of like they were their puppet. So Rome would conquer them in terms of military might and power, and then they would basically uh, allow Jerusalem to keep peace as long as, you know, they would, the Romans would maybe administer justice when it was needed to be, if it was an uprising, or they would, they would actually collect heavy taxes. Uh, and, but yeah, their main goal was to basically suppress unrest. And so there's this tension in Jerusalem where they're kind of ruled by Rome, but they still have their freedom of the Jewish culture uh, embedded in that. So Caesar at this time, though, even if you asked anyone, it was kind of the cultural norm to say Caesar is Lord, Caesar is son of God, Caesar is king. That was the understanding, and that his role, the good news, the gospel of Caesar, was to bring peace and blessing to all. So that's the first component of the storm, is the, the Roman culture that we sometimes forget how embedded it is into the story. In fact, you'll, you'll realize it later with Pontius Pilate and the, uh, how the Jews want to kill Jesus. They have to go through the Roman authorities. And so the second uh, group is the Jews, the people of Israel. Now, I want to just give you the th- a 30-second reminder review of the Old Testament and how we're getting to the point where Jesus is now. God chose through Abraham. He was the father of a nation. This was Israel. This was God's chosen nation. And they continually fail. They basically can't meet out his standards. They are uh, just corrupt people full of just destruction and iniquity and um, all the negative stuff. And so what happens is God create, uh, God God brings Moses right into play. And Moses is their great teacher, and he helps administer God's law. Like God creates these laws that allow them to evaluate and to atone for sin so that they can be in God's presence and that the temple which they had, they had God's presence was in was able to be sacrificed so that he could be there with them. But they also fail at that. They start neglecting the laws or they take the, uh, they don't have the heart of, of God for God, but they just, they're um, destructing, they're destructive and they disobey and so they fail again. And then Later, they have prophets who come, and they give the words of the Lord, and they warn the people, but the people typically don't listen, and then they decide, you know what? We want to be like other nations, and so we want a king, and so God gives them a king. He gives them Saul and David and Solomon and so on, and these kings who appear to be good, and some of them are after God's heart, some of them aren't, still get colluded by the wealth and the power and lots of women, and so they fall as well. Though they may have had times of good, they were ultimately fallen. So at the end of this, we see the Jews sent to exile. They're captured. They're sent to exile for several hundred years. And at, the, at this point now where Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, they had been come back. They had restored the city. And, and, and what they're all doing and what they're all waiting for is the hope of the new Messiah, that the Messiah would come and save them. Um, and that basically their view of it was that he was going to 
he could be king of the world. So they assumed he would either come with military might or, or take over Rome or whatever it may be. They were waiting for this Messiah to come rescue them fully from their hardship. And so what's so dramatic about this week for the Jewish culture, for Jerusalem, is this is, as we said, saw in John 12, this is the Passover week. The Passover week was the biggest week of the year. Just even like if you're a Jew now, it's still a really big deal uh, for the calendar. But the Passover was, was, it did two things. It was, it was helping you remember the past and then have a great hope for the future. So you remember the past and what they were remembering was Moses and them um, being led out of Egypt, um, being, they would put a sacrifice, basically a blood of a lamb on their door. And so the spirit of God would pass over them as it was, he was killing the first um, born sons at the time in Egypt. And so they remember that God's grace in that. And so they, and then they look forward to the future. The future is the new Messiah that will make all things new, that will uh, restore them and become king of, of the world. And so Passover was was this perfect moment where they they're, they have this glimpse of hope that they're looking forward to, regardless of their circumstances. And there's there's tons of kind of angst in this. People don't realize that if you were a Jew at this time and you didn't live in Jerusalem, which was extremely common to not live there, this was your you would come back for this festival. Um, you wouldn't celebrate it from the small town you were at. You would actually go and you'd stay in Jerusalem. And so historians estimate at this time there was probably. 20 to 30, um, at max 50,000 people living in the city, and it would swell to about six to seven times its size during this week. Now, remember, this is not like modern day with tons of Motel 6s everywhere. There's literally just homes and uh, maybe a few inns, and so people were literally sleeping everywhere. I mean, this is a chaos. You, you walk into the city, there's probably just people everywhere. There's lines for everything. Imagine if you, it's like OSU Saturday, um, but it's five times worse and everyone is going to the game and everything else is closed. So if you want to do anything else, good luck. So the city is just, is just so massively full. Now, remember when I talked about the first part of the storm is the Romans. Well, the Romans aren't happy about this. They're stressed because the Romans don't want any uprising. They don't want any unrest. And now the city has inflated several times more Jewish people that would kind of outnumber them. And so this was a time of tense moments for them. Um, and they even had to prepare the infrastructure for this many people. They had to build, rebuild roads and bridges and, and have the ability to hold all of these people for this week. So going back to the Jewish people, though, um, the common Jewish person would be, you know, sleeping on your brother's friend's couch, right, for this week. Just 10 people in a room, probably, <clears throat> in some cases. And um, but then the, the priests and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the Jewish people, they're also extremely on edge this week because this is their big week, right? This is like their, this is the Easter Sunday of, uh, of the pastor world, right? You got to bring your A game. Everybody's here. And so they're, they're on edge, right? They're, they're um, trying to create influence and to do this week well. And so um, there's just tension everywhere that's looming. And the Jews are not dumb. They had read their Old Testament. They knew the Torah, the God's law, and they knew some of the prophets and the Psalms, Ezekiel, Isaiah, that it was clear that God was going to come he was going to set his rule and David's rule forever. So they, they know that, that there's this hope that they look for every week or every every time for the week of Passover, that that time, um, and for the Passover meal. They, they know that, and they've seen this pattern of wicked rulers, people suffering, and then they have a hero, and then a battle, and then a victory, uh, and then a rule of surrounding nations, and then God's dwelling is established. They, they, they see this pattern over and over and over again, and they're, they're looking for that again. In fact, 
this is the last piece of nerdy history I'll give you. But in fact, they'd actually seen people attempt to be this so-called Messiah uh, d- different times before this and actually after as well. So the main one we know of is uh, a guy by the name of Judah the Hammer, which in all honesty, that's a pretty bomb name. If I if I had have a nickname, I think Trey the Hammer would be pretty cool. <laughs> um, but his name was actually it was Judas uh, Maccabeus. And um, Judah Maccabeus, and he, um, he too, like Jesus, led a three-year campaign, a three-year kind of little campaign, ending in a triumphal entry into Jerusalem and a cleansing of the temple. See, the temple at this time was taken by Syria. This was 200 years before Jesus. And so Judah fought to restore it, and people celebrated by waving palm branches. And he and his family reigned as chief priests and king of the Jews. You think about that, you're like, wow, that is shockingly similar. Like people had known someone, in fact, probably people when Jesus was riding into Jerusalem, people had remembered Judah the Hammer. They'd been told, passed down from generations, the story of Judah the Hammer. And and Judah gets into the temple and he starts, you know, fighting for the people and, and the Jewish people. And uh, unfortunately, his family who'd taken over was a train wreck and fractured, fractured into many different groups, some of whom are Pharisees now in Jesus' day, but they know of the reality of the hope for this Messiah who will make things right. But what we've seen the last thousand year, thousands of years with the Israel people, Israelite people is that they think they know what they need to do and they fail. And they think they know what they need to do this time and they fail. And their hearts are just bent on failing against God. And that is the narrative that we come into with the Romans as the first part of the storm, the Jew, Jewish tension in the second part through the Passover and then the third variable in this storm is God coming onto the scene. Jesus of Nazareth, which is just this small podunk town, is riding in on a donkey um, into this intense chaos. Uh, N.T. Wright calls it the divine hurricane, which Jesus <clears throat> sweeps in from the ocean. And to accomplish its purpose, it must meet head-on the cruel western wind of the pagan empire Rome, and the high-octane, high-pressure system of national aspiration Israel. I mean, he's coming at some of the most tense moment, not only of the year, but of, of this time period. And he's fulfilling so many prophecies. I can't even list them all. We don't have enough time, but that he's fulfilling Zechariah 9 is probably the, the primary one that you could read. Um, and he's fulfilling these prophecies, and he comes in here on the same way that David and Solomon had prior King David, King Solomon, they had at one point rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. The king has come. He's here to stay. He's king of the Jews. So when you're riding in like, like, like Jesus is on a, on a cult, people know what like to expect thinking that this might be the king of the Jews, which is why they're shouting Hosanna. Blessed is the one. Blessed is the king. They, they are expecting and hopeful that this will be the true one. The, the ones prior and actually the ones after, there's there's other guys that try this similar thing after Jesus, um, that he will be the true king of the people. Now, where this really, that's enough history, hopefully you survived, <laughs> where this really, the rub really starts to hit the road in this, this day and this entry is us, I would even say today, assuming of the intention behind Jesus riding in a donkey and the Palm Sunday and the, the, the whole purpose of his week in Jerusalem. A lot of us miss like what he's doing and how he acts. And, and honestly, he's going to have one of his most, I would say, um, tense, zealous moments in, in, in the next day 
And so we have to look at what he's doing because he's being incredibly intentional in the ways that he's working. He's not like all these other people who had who had become king and tried to do these things and restore things, and ultimately they end up failing. He will do it right. And so um, he he rides into this inflated city, and there's there's kind of three different responses we see. Verse 13, there's people who responded with admiration. You know, these are maybe your common people, Jews, who have seen, maybe he, they just some of them had heard that he had healed Lazarus from the dead, um, raised him from the dead. Some have seen healings or heard he- about healings or heard things that he can do for them. And so they're shouting and they're throwing their cloaks on the dirty ground. I mean, they're just desperate for the hope of a Messiah, for someone who will save them. Then you have the Pharisees. Like I said, the Pharisees, this is, uh, you know, the religious leaders. This is their most tense week of the year. And, and now they have this guy coming in riding on a colt saying, I'm the king of the Jews, which when you realize when you say you're the king of the Jews, it means the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, the head of that, the Jewish people, that means he is saying he's over them and he rules over them and that, that fractures their role. So uh, this is not good and they are not happy. And it even says, they, this is when they plotted. They're like, we got to kill this guy. Um, and this is because they don't want their tradition to be usurped. And this is their week to shine. And so they're angry. And then you have the seekers who are the Gentiles, which are like people who aren't Jewish, but are there either to kind of celebrate some of the Passover tradition culture um, or just in the, in the town. And those people are, are, are kind of spiritually curious, right? Those are the people, and, and we're most of us, unless you have Jewish heritage, are all Gentiles. So um, these people are spiritually curious, figuring out like who is Jesus offering these things to? What is who has he come for? And they're so they're curious of all that. And so as he rides into the city, okay, now that you know all that backstory, like people are not seeing him and just being like, oh, this is a cool guy. Wow, they have all of these different oral traditions that have been passed down for the last two, three hundred years. They know of Judah the Hammer. They know of the tension of Rome and them themselves having to pay taxes. They know of the Jewish religious leaders. And in fact, a lot of common Jews didn't even like the Jewish leaders or the temple because that was where they kept all the debts, all the records of their debts. So if you owed money, it was the, 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 the record was in the temple. I mean, this is, and this man is coming in and you've heard things about him and he's riding in on a colt and you say, wow, that's just like David. That's just like Solomon. And, and, and you, you start to become excited. You, you ask yourself, is this the Messiah? Is this the one who's coming? And so we see the first thing he does when he arrives in Jerusalem. This is really important because he's here a whole week. There's a bunch of different verses written on that week. The first thing he does, it says in Mark 11, 11, it says, then Jesus entered Jerusalem and he went to the temple. And after looking around at everything in the temple, he went out to Bethany with the 12 since it was already late. Now, in case you're wondering, if you don't have a map pulled up, um, Bethany is a small town right outside of Jerusalem, which he frequently goes to at night, kind of staying there. Um, and so the first thing he does, he goes into the temple. He walks straight through Jerusalem gates um, up into the temple, and he inspects the temple. He immediately goes to God's house and is seeing how it's being run and how it's going. Now, this is late at night, so most likely it's not probably very busy, um, but you can, you know, pe- things are laid out. There, right? There's tables out there that's not like, packed, but he can see the, the status of it. And he goes back to Bethany and they walk back to Bethany and he either sleeps or we don't know, but he does something overnight. And then the next day he wakes up and he's going to come back to the temple. Now, most of us miss this detail. In fact, we forget that Jesus loved the temple, that he spent hours there as a kid, that he was a, a loyal rule following Jew. I mean, he abided by the Jewish culture. It wasn't like he was rogue from day one. And so everybody remembers Jesus making a whip 
right, with cords and, and driving people out. And they're like, Jesus came in there and he just flipped a switch. And it's like, yeah, but he also knew what was going on 12 hours before he did that. He inspected the temple at night, left, went to Bethany, processed it, took some time, I don't know, prayed maybe, was angry, and comes back the next day. And a lot of us miss that. So if you're trying to use that instance to justify your your frustration and anger of just reacting on someone, you should probably recalibrate that because Jesus took a good half a day, if not more, to process through his emotions and what he how he was going to respond to what he had seen. So in verse 12, we see um, this little incident in between him basically being in Bethany and going back, th- he had to go through the Mount of Olives into, the, into Jerusalem, into the temple. And it says in verse 12, the next day as they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. After noticing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he's on his way to the temple, he went to see if he could find any fruit on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, this is what the, the nerdy scholars call a miracle of destruction. Um, and this is a reminder, Jesus is coming as king, but he's coming in a way we least expect with a kingship that we least understand. I remember reading this as a kid. In fact, I honestly, I don't even think I understood this maybe until last year of my life. Like I just didn't understand. Gosh, this just seems so random, this fig tree and he curses it and it kills it for no reason. It doesn't really make any sense. Even when you read like why and all that, it's just, it's, it's hard to understand. But remember, this is in light of his way into the temple, knowing the reality of God's temple and how it was out. It was out of sorts. And we know that because in verse 15, here he goes, he's going to Jerusalem it says when they came to Jerusalem, he enters the temple area and he begins to drive out those who were selling and buying in the temple courts. He turned over the tables of money changers and the, the chairs of those selling doves, and he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Now, just pausing here. There's a lot of fascinating understanding behind this. So the, the entire temple was this, it had these walls and this big, you know, courtyard. And there was this area called Solomon's Portico, which was where these courts are at. It's kind of on the side of the temple, inside the walls, though. And then there's another, like, little baby um, building in the middle where is where the, the holies of holies and the, alt- the altars of sacrifice would be. And so that's kind of a different area. And so basically, um, Caiaphas, the high priest, had moved all of the selling of these Doves, sacrifices, money changing into the temple. It used to be outside the temple. It used to be in the marketplace. It was much more fair game. And he's moving all of this sale uh, into the temple itself. And what's going on here, what we don't realize, is when you come to Jerusalem, when you visit for the Passover, you're not, you're, fly, you're flying frontier, right? You got no bags. <laughs> you got to have a backpack on your back and you don't got room to carry your lamb for sacrifice. So what do you do? You bring an extra 20 bucks. And, and what you would do is you go into the temple to get your sacrifice, right? But the problem was, is this is how messed up these Pharisees are. They, they created basically their own temple currency. And so the Roman denarii did not work there, even though they're in a Roman providence. They had to go into the temple. They had to exchange it for gouging rates. It's like when you go to the airport, you fly to Europe and you need a franc, and they give you like nothing for your American dollar because you're in the airport. You're going into the temple. You're getting basically nothing in exchange for this temple currency. And then on top of that, they're going to sell you sacrifices there for a peak amount. So literally, they're just taking advantage of the people who are trying to be able to sacrifice for the celebratory understanding of what God has done and what he's doing in the very temple itself. So if, if you don't understand why Jesus was mad, hopefully now you can understand that, I mean, this is just like, this is just evil. 
I mean, it's just evil and it's greed and it's, um, it has no room in God's house of holiness. And another little interesting tidbit just for fun is it talks about selling doves. Well, doves at this time were in essence, the poor man's sacrifice. So if you were a prostitute or a leper, you maybe you didn't widow, you didn't have any enough money, you would not be able to afford a, a bigger animal that would be sacrificed. And so you would literally buy a dove. That was your sacrifice. And so not only that, I mean, Jesus is basically flipping over the chairs of those selling doves. He's basically like, how can you take advantage of the very people that God told you not to? In fact, in the Old Testament, um, I believe it's Jeremiah 7. Don't quote me on it. In Jeremiah 7, um, God literally says, he's mad at the Israelites. And he says, you are not taking advantage or you're taking advantage of the people that I love, the poor, the sick, the downtrodden. If you will, you know, change heart, right? And repent and turn and and love them, then I will like renew and be faithful in my covenant with you. He literally says that exact thing. And he uses a phrase, says a den of robbers. You're robbing from the people who, who my heart most goes out to. And that's obviously Jesus, you know, is his heart goes out to the, the downtrodden and the, the sick and the poor. And, and so look in verse 17 now, after he does all this, he doesn't permit anyone to carry this, this merchandise through the temple courts. Then he began to teach them, and he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of robbers. The den of robbers. He's quoting directly here. He's like, Look, you literally are doing the exact thing that you've seen in Jeremiah done again, and how did God react before? And so now Jesus is, is, is coming on the scene, his week, his holy week in Jerusalem, and his priority is to restore the sanctity and reverence of God's temple and the meeting place with which heaven and earth met. I mean, they're they are trying to make a quick buck on it. I mean, how terrible is this? This is just so provocative. We don't even realize the weight of this story. And I think we need to realize that when we think about, like, what is Jesus's priority? Like, this is the most zealous and aggressive, I think, that you'll see Jesus in the entire in entire gospel accounts. Probably the most aggressive and zealous you'll ever see him. But when, what was it, what was that act for? It was for a reverence and respect of God's presence and his dwelling place that was deserved. So when we act like God is, you know, Jesus is just a passive, loving guy. It's like, well, to be honest, like he, he is loving, but in this instance, his lovingness is, it's aggressive. He cares deeply for the holiness of God and God's people to take it serious. Now that doesn't mean there's not grace, but this is Jesus's priority coming into Holy Week, coming into Jerusalem as King, making things right and new is showing people how bent our hearts are on Jesus sometimes. And so the question, I would say the one question to take away, and, and I would say just pray through, reflect on, meditate on this week, is this question, how in your life are you honoring God with, with your, your mouth or maybe your hands while your heart is far from him? How in your life are you honoring God more with what you say or do while your heart is far from him? That's exactly what's going on here in this temple. Jesus cares more about our heart than the things that we do. And we see this because we realize that that the fig tree has deep meaning. In fact, the fig tree actually means it was in it was in relations involved to the temple. It was basically saying, look, this tree which is supposed to be providing fruit, which was our it's kind of our expression of um, as Christians, we bear fruit, which means we're we're doing the work of God. We're supposed to bear fruit and we go up to the tree and it's producing nothing, and Jesus says, We're done with this. I'm done with it. 
no more, and he curses it, and it dies. He, he's, it's, he's destroying it, and then Jesus will say in other gospels basically like, just wait until the temple is destroyed. Not one stone will be left upon it, and he's telling people it's going to be devastating. And, and the people, remember, the, the temple is, is their identity. This is the one place in the entire world. I mean, it was in, insane where God's presence is is present with people. It's where heaven met earth inside the Holy of Holies through proper sacrifice and atonement. That's where they met him. And Jesus is saying, yeah, it's not going to be there anymore. I'm cursing it. It's not providing the fruit, the 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 grace and love and, and, and reverence and respect that is supposed to be from it. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's basically pointing out not only the flaws of the temple and the people's hearts, but he's bringing them into this new temple. In fact, he is the walking temple. And that's why whenever he storms the, the temple and he flips the tables and he, and he says he doesn't allow anyone to carry merchandise into the, the sacrifice of altar's room, um, he's essentially stopping the production of the temple. He's stopping what was able to be done to atone for, to be in the presence of God. He's stopping it. And so if the temple isn't the center of everything for these people, the place where heaven and earth meet, the building in which God and his people come together, then what is? And that is where Jesus is turning to us this week of him being the walking, breathing, living temple of heaven and earth coming together, the kingdom of God merging as one and us choosing to believe in that faith, um, becoming a part of the kingdom here on earth. And so we read in verse 20, the, the fig tree in the morning, as they passed by, they, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots when Jesus had cursed it. And then Peter said, Peter remembered, he says to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. It's gone. It's no longer needed. And so this is Jesus' priority and our priority for this week. What is the center of everything in your life? What is captivating our hearts? What needs to die over this week? We'll see that Jesus needed to die for us because we cannot rescue ourselves from our sin for making ourselves and other things God over the real God, that we are we are putting, placing greed, lust, um, selfishness above the things of God, and our hearts are misaligned. And Jesus is calling us to reevaluate, to see him for who he is and what he is there for, and to trust and choose him. And Jesus says to Peter, after he says that the, the, the fig tree is with it, he, Jesus says, have faith in God. I tell you the truth. If someone says this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Jesus says, don't worry about the destruction. Don't worry about the things you've placed so much of your identity in. Have faith in me. I am the temple of God. Accept my sacrifice into your heart. And that is where God resides now, not in a temple. So over this next week, I just encourage you to pray through and think through what is the things in my life where my, my hands and my, my, my mouth and my actions maybe are the things that might be, I think are right in my life, um, but ultimately I'm failing in, in how um, am I opening my heart to the Lord and understanding this week of the significance of what it will be on Friday and on Sunday. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.